Hello. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by Human Restoration Project's fantastic patrons. All of our work, which includes free resources, materials, and this podcast, is available for free due to our Patreon supporters, three of whom are Mary Walls, Jeremiah Henderson, and Sheila N. Thank you for your ongoing support. You can learn more about the Human Restoration Project on our website, humanrestorationproject.org, or find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 21 of Things Fall Apart, our podcast of the Human Restoration Project. My name is Chris, and I'm a high school digital media instructor from Ohio. In this podcast, we are joined by Dr. Yang Zhao, the Foundation Distinguished Professor in the School of Education at the University of Kansas. Zhao was the Presidential Chair and Director of the Institute for Global and Online Education at the University of Oregon, and a University Distinguished Professor at Michigan State University. Further, he served as the founding director of the Confucius Institute and U.S.-China Center for Research on Educational Excellence. Not to mention, he's also the author of over 100 articles and 30 books, many focused on turning away from standardized tests and focusing on personalized learning for all children. Zhao and I will talk about building a movement that ends standardized testing in the United States and how to build classrooms that invoke a student's innate desire to learn. You recently wrote this article about PISA scores, and I know that you know a huge part of your career in speaking has been about the issues of standardized testing and uh, like the what works may hurt approach of increasing those scores. You know that information's out there. We talk about it all the time, and I think a lot of teachers recognize this. How do we then convince institutions as well as students and parents? to actually change how they assess or change how they look at standardized tests? Well, I think that's the, uh, the struggle. Uh, you know, when you and I and there are many other enlightened people have seen uh, through the test scores, even in college admissions, you know, why, you know, college admissions use SAT scores, SAT scores really as a way to discriminate against uh, disadvantaged, you know, minority kids. You know, they don't mean money in, in anything. Also, the accountability scores or PISA scores, any of those things, they're, they're meaningless. But what I think we need to do is to uh, just tell more the story. You, you, we do see the power of public opinion. I think as teachers, you, even though you, you are under the, right now the authoritarian regime of test scores in your district, but it doesn't stop you from um, sharing the message, sharing the article, sharing the evidence with parents, with school administrators. Uh, it's going to take a while to move the, the public opinion about it. I think uh, we used to have a much healthier suspicion of test scores. I think in, over the last 20, 30 years, we've lost that. But I think the only thing we can do is talk to people, keep talking, keep repeating. And I do see the change in the movement. I mean, over the last uh, several years, actually, you look at uh, you know, ESSA, which is uh, still have a lot of testing in it, but it's definitely uh, relaxed after you know, uh, more more relaxed than no child left behind, I would say. So we do see the change of this. Just keep working, keep talking, yeah, like you do, you know. For sure. I mean, you see that too with um, ACT and SAT scores, even though it's a little bit different. I mean, there's a lot of institutions that no longer are accepting that. We're seeing that a, a lot recently. Yeah, make it optional. Like 48% of U.S. four-year colleges don't use it anymore. And with that kind of being said, do you have any suggestions then for teachers to communicate this message in a way that it would actually matter 
like as in, is there a certain strategy or idea that you would offer teachers to get those ideas out there? Yeah, um, I, I, I really think, Chris, it's important to, uh, even though I don't have the book, like in, in my book, what, what works may hurt, I think there are several messages you want, want, want to convey that there's enough and clear evidence uh, to show that test scores at any age at any scale, either SAT, SAT, PISA, state, do not predict a children's future success. Okay, so that's the first thing. So you, you struggle all the time and you try this, it does not really guarantee your kids success. And second thing, does not reflect your teacher's ability. There's a lot of evidence to show that, you know, like I, I was treating an article uh, out done by a group of economists talking about how uh, you know, try, you, you know, this value-added model, uh, people are trying to push that to punish teachers. But actually, you know, this study showed, well, the student height are related to teachers. You know, it's impossible. That's the absurdity of this. You can show this evidence. But the third point is that uh, not only test scores don't mean much uh, for college success, for future success, but it also causes damages. That's why I was exposing in the PISA, you know, for Chinese kids and you know, Asian kids, they may do very well on test scores, but they are really hurt. Their confidence is low. They do not value the subject. They're not interested in school, and they're psychologically distressed. So what do you want? I think uh, those messages are worth painting. You know, they don't mean much. They cause damages, and therefore it's not worth pursuing. There's a lot of evidence. I would uh, create charts, create PowerPoints, share the messages to others, you know, uh, you always have a chance to do it. Yeah. I, I think that that matters a lot too, especially when our students are so anxious and depressed and, and just in general um, are going through a lot right now. That high stakes pressure of assessment um, certainly is contributing to at least some of that. I, I wanted to refer to uh, your work, Counting What Counts, um, where you and a, a bunch of others talk about alternative means of measurement. I'm assuming that there's probably always going to be some form of assessment with schools, um, at least at the national level. And you talk about like motivation, for example. Do you see any organizations or tests right now that are being used or spread that do alternative forms of assessment? Well, I'm very cautious of recommending any kind of assessment, honestly, because once they become, once you use a one test to hold teachers accountable, you're dehumanizing teachers. You're trivializing education as a technique. So even, even in that book, Counting What It Counts, you know, there are many other things you can measure. You could measure like uh, uh, creativity, entrepreneur thinking. Nowadays, you can measure growth mindset, great motivation. You can measure all kinds of things. But most of those things should really be based on, I would say, actual authentic work, a teacher observation. I'm very suspicious of anything. Actually, I'm right now examining the PISA creativity test. I think it's going to be a horrible way to actually kill creativity. So I would really go back to a time to trust good teachers' professional judgment about kids' progress. I hope, actually, some organization is developing tools to help teachers become better judge, you know, judges of the students' progress, become better reporters of that. I know many schools say, oh, we taxpayers give money, they give a lot of money, we've got to hold schools accountable. But a lot of times when you hold teachers as human, you, you use any quantitative measure to hold teachers accountable, 
you are going to corrupt the process. That's for Campbell's law. Donald Campbell said it. So I'm, I'm really, I think that, that book and the main of my arguments is always trying to say, okay, there are other options, but those options should not replace, become like the new thing. It's like now I'm, I'm like, I love um, social emotional learning. I love uh, people doing social emotional well-being, but the social emotional learning as promoted now is very problematic. The SEL promoted now. They're putting into fake standards, hold teachers accountable. That's very problematic. It's as bad as as the common core, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a lot of that seems to be tied to the financial implications. Like, as an education company, I mean, you could make so much money right now by just selling some like motivational uh, curriculum uh, to make people feel quote unquote good about themselves. Yeah. So when I make that, I was more like look at look at other possibilities, not just say, oh, do motivation. You know, there's companies trying to sell uh, mind up, selling growth mindset. I mean, it's, it's it's silly. Actually, it's, I want to return the power to teachers and human beings that run a human business. You don't need all of those kind of things. Yeah, I mean, learning is very complex. So the idea of taking it down to like one point at any time doesn't make any sense to begin with. And one of those things that I, I always struggle with personally as a teacher, because it, it can be slightly demotivating or, or scary, which is it's a group of teachers that tend to not be very well respected in society versus this giant like neoliberal test taking industry with so much power and wealth. And sometimes it be, can be very demotivating, for lack of a better term, to think about if that's ever actually going to change. What advice would you have for educators who are participating in this work that feel like they're kind of up against the Goliath? They don't really know what to do next. Well, I mean, Diane Ravichino wrote the book, David versus Goliath. And you can think about it. I, I actually, I, this is one point I want to through your podcast to reach all the teachers just to say this, you know. There are many things we don't know whether we can change, but that's no reason for us not to try, Okay. I think we have power. We do change. We do make a difference. Giving up is not an option, especially if, you're, if we are in this profession, giving up, blaming others. That there's nothing we can do. I think I, I'm, I'm more like, uh, uh, you know, uh, in many ways, it's like uh, even only hero uh, idea to say, we have a moral purpose to drive, to change. We're the public intellectual. And what is going to change? Or and we can't. Uh, another a, a great guy coming to deliver new policy and new ideas. We have to work at it. I, I don't really believe the system itself is going to change. You know, like people talk about the social mobility. We always recommend policy changes. Policies don't change themselves. Politicians change, and politicians have to respond to what we do. You know, like in the minute, I don't like the, you know, politically, I don't like what's going on in this country. Washington, D.C., it's such a mess. But who I blame, I blame our voters. I blame our educators when I taught our voters good enough to say, we got to fight, we got to keep doing this thing. And, and I don't really have a lot of hope to say, things will change just because of me. And, but I want to tell you because we all work towards something, public opinion shifts, public opinion changes, then that changes the politician and the change public policy. It relates a lot to what we're trying to promote at Human Restoration Project, which is systemic change uh, over just a different type of strategy. Uh, there's a lot of professional development and, I mean, authors, booksellers, et cetera, 
who are trying to just say, if you just teach this way, you'll see like 10% better classes or, you know, like what your, your day will be slightly better. But at its core, educators really need to be mobilizing to change entire systems. Like, for example, equitable education systems with funding or gradeless learning or, you know, things that radicalize how the actual structure of a classroom is well, seen. I, I think, you know, you, you need to re, re, resist your group of teachers. I want teachers to resist the mechanization of teaching or trivializing teaching as engineering, a simple technical process. It's a human endeavor that, that embroils all the humanity of teachers in the process. It's not a teach this way, lesson this way. I, I don't think we understand. A lot of the PD I've seen, a lot of the books written for teachers, they trivialize teaching as a little tiny trick. It's not a trick, you know. It's, it's a wholehearted with the soul, with the body, with the heart. You, you actually you, you build a relationship with another human being. That's what I think. We, we, I want I want your group teachers to think about this. You know, your restoration of humanity is the right thing. Resist the technique kind of way of doing things. Yeah, and it, it's kind of the exact same thing too. What's going on with students, which is the idea of teaching only for career, or uh, as some kind of uh, financial gain or economic gain which ignores all the complexities of human growth and probably the reason why we're seeing so many different um, social emotional issues in general uh, when your entire value is tied to, you know, your finances. And kind of in the exact same vein, uh, I know that you mentioned that you have a new book coming out surrounding self-directed education. What do you then see as the role of an educator day-to-day within a self-directed classroom? Like, would it work in the standard 25 people to one room class that we see now? Well, you know, they are, the, the book is uh, coming out of, from ASCD. It's called uh, Teaching Students to Become Self-Determined Learners. I, I co-write this with uh, uh, Michael Weimar, who is a really uh, huge expert scholar in special education. You know, so that's, uh, so it, and then uh, several other books I've written uh, that include this one. And it's, it's really First of all, we're talking about students, not student boys, not student agencies. Students as human beings deserve the right to self-determination. As anybody, right? like any human being, as teachers do, you have that right to self-determination, self-determination of your, your goal, your outcome, your environment. So how do we help students to develop as human beings? The same as teachers, it's like autonomy. So. And uh, I would say teachers back off from looking at uh, the teaching process as implementing the curriculum standards or transmitting the content, but rather you look at every child to say how they grow. And if children can take responsibility to grow for the learning environment, actually you can reduce that. I'm running experiments of similar methods in China, in Australia. Think about in China, we got the, a class of 60 kids. And I've uh, convinced actually US teachers to do it and Australian teachers to do it in China. And they're doing fine. We just, you, you reorganize. You organize the student in a very different way. And, uh, and but, but the key is to have students to, to take ownership, to be responsible for their own learning. They work with you. So, and they just have, you have different specialties. And when you go to these schools and you propose these ideas, what do you say to those that offer pushback that, that say things like the students, quote unquote, need certain types of knowledge or need that traditional style of learning in order for them to 
do anything. That sounds kind of gross, but I mean, first of all, I, I actually, I, 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 well, I, I do different kind of talks. The people always ask if they ask those questions, I will give them evidence to say, well, look at this. This is evidence one, evidence two, how it's been done, how it's been done. So I can talk about that. But more importantly, when I work with schools, I, I, I'm not kind of about, I, I, I'm an imitation kind of that, not imposition. I always believe uh, I'm going to invite people, the ones who are willing to try it, to do it. Like your organization, your podcast, you know, it's more like invitation. So I, I do not try to spend too much time trying to convince people. So I think a lot of them may want to say examples. I always believe there are teachers who are not happy with what they're doing, who believe what we're talking about intuitively. Everywhere I go, there's somebody who wants to try it. So that's where I work with the ones who are willing to try but more and more people, you know, the how the social movement happens is that when a few people like it, they do it as an example, they say alternative, then they're going to follow. I, I'm thinking about teachers that might be listening to this that um, are maybe younger, maybe just started teaching, <laughs> and they love all these different ideas, but they just yeah. really don't know where to start because there isn't necessarily yeah. like a, a set step-by-step guide on what to do in order to change everything that it is that you were taught in terms of teacher education? Well, I mean, I would say start very small. Uh, you know, I've, I've got suggestions. You know, in, in my other book, I wrote this thing called, you know, the uh, Rich for Greatness. The book is called uh, Personalizable Education for All Children. And uh, just a new book came out. I work with my students. We collect a lot of examples of how teachers can get started. And it's not a teacher's started just out of the blue because I'm tired of teaching the old way. I mean, I would say the first thing you can say, okay, start with uh, one tiny project. You know, people always say, oh, how about a passion project? You're teaching eighth grade English. You ask kids to say, okay, and this one assignment, you can do whatever you like. You know, then let's see how that goes. And there's other projects that I'm involved in that uh, uh, I always try to say, okay, can your kids go out and say, okay, can they find a problem? That's worth solving. And whatever subject you're teaching, use the subject to solve a problem for the community, for others. You know, I'm, I'm doing language, for example. I'm working with kids in China who are learning English. They have got involved Australian teachers to have their students to be writing English materials for Chinese kids, you know. And uh, co-writing recipes, uh, co-writing history books in, in bilingually. That's kind of work you can do. Just start with something very small or start with... Uh, the kids who really don't like your class, the kids who are disengaged, you know, maybe start with them asking them what they would like to do and what change they would like to make. And also the, the kids who you really feel challenged, you know, put them in charge because put them in charge to make, make them help you to do something. Kids always like to be valued and like to contribute to something. I would say do not try to do big changes. Start with one little project, a few weeks, start with a couple of students, and you probably see amazing things, you know. Another thing I've done myself in my teaching, if I have to teach, let's say, uh, this class, I would tell my students maybe one-third of the content I have decided is good for you. Everybody has to learn. One-third of this you can decide on yourself, but have to justify why you want to learn it. Another third maybe have to be negotiated among your colleagues, among your friends, why you have to learn. So this is make it relevant, make it authentic. And that really trust the kids can do something. You can gradually relinquish your control to them. 
Yeah, I think that that brings up a lot of great points surrounding the, the dangers of labeling students. And when we have grades and standardized tests and report cards and things of that nature, we tend to see students who aren't performing academically very well in that system as the quote unquote bad kids. And as a result, I think that they get less attention or at least frequent negative attention. And that's not going to help anyone in the situation. I mean, I know I've given students that who traditionally don't perform very well in school, some like assignments that they want to do or projects that they want to do. And all of a sudden they were obviously the leaders in the classroom, which I, I doubt in the teacher's lounge is how they were described in the past. And that is a serious issue with like assigning a number to someone or assigning a, a value yeah. to someone based well, on. Well, let them shine everywhere. I mean, if I were a teacher or school principal, I always say, you know, does every student in your class, in your school feel that good at something? That, that's, I think that's a really important measure for me. You feel that good at something. Yeah, I, I, I feel like that should just be a normal thing about school. Um, the fact that that wouldn't be a normal thing about school is shocking and worrying. Uh, that someone wouldn't feel like they're good at something. Um, but sadly, that is the case. I have a final question for you, which is, what goals do you have personally or what organizations have you seen that you feel would be great for a school to partner with or something that you're working on that could help change how education's currently working and how we're using data and everything of that measure? Well, I mean, honestly, I've seen many organizations. Uh, um, I haven't seen one that I would highly recommend, but I think it sounds like your your group may be the one. You know, <laughs> okay, like, uh, okay. I'll know, take that as an endorsement. Because, I'll put it on our website. I, I, I really like to see teachers taking charge because, you know, right now we have a lot of young teachers. I really want them to become social activists. You know, advocated for just and fair education for all children. It's like, uh, you know, it's like environmentalism. Now the youth is a big movement, right? I think the youth, I want the teachers to partner with students to say, can we create a new kind of community, a coalition, a social movement, training, bringing humanity out of education. You know, education is a science, we know, but education is also value-driven science. It's not a value in it, you know. So that's why when I wrote the book, What Works May Hurt, is to show that it's not only so-called evidence or not only empiricism, it's a value. You make a judgment about it, you know, those things. So, yeah, I, I haven't really seen any one particular, but, but again, there's so many organizations. People can work together, but you know, anybody can, social organization can work. Mm. Yeah, I, I, trust me, you're speaking to my heartstrings. Uh, I, I love yeah. that idea of building a new future and kind of, making others kind of step out of the way um, because that's what yeah. it's going to take. It has to be a little bit more forceful. It can't be baby steps when it comes to systemic change. It's always going to have to be, you can't tinker around utopia, essentially. You got to just do it. Yeah, I mean, along the line, you know, like, for example, teacher unions. And, I mean, I'm, I, teacher unions have different functions, but a lot of them, teacher unions probably need to be focused a lot more on the moral purpose of teaching, the professionalism of it too, you know. Exactly. Yeah, the idea of, like, actually changing what school is, um, not necessarily yeah. just protecting someone's job. There's a lot more to it than that. Exactly, yeah. Because if you are indispensable, then you will have an indispensable. You'll be indispensable, right? Yeah. Thank you again for listening to Things Fall Apart from the Human Restoration Project. I hope that this conversation leaves you inspired and ready to push the progressive envelope of education. You can learn more about progressive education, support our cause, and stay tuned to this podcast and other updates on our website at humanrestorationproject.org.